Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the M121 podcast. On today's podcast, I'm going to play for you a message that I found several years ago from the late Sonny Piles in which he discusses three essential facts to unlock the Bible for you. Um, you'll, you'll see that he talks about the way the Bible uses the word salvation. He talks about cause and effect and the different aspects of the kingdom of God. Our friends over at March to Zion Ministries, MarchToZion.com, have transcribed this sermon and put it into a little booklet that's less than $3 that you can order through their bookstore. So I'd encourage you to go to MarchToZion.com to check that out. But first, listen to the message now from the late Sonny Piles entitled Three Essential Facts. May God bless you all. If it's the Lord's will, I want to set before you three essential facts or three essential things in the Scriptures that God's people need to understand in order to understand the doctrine of salvation and to understand what the Lord has done for you. There are two of these subjects or two of these essential facts that I've spoken about a number of times over the years. There's a third one that I've not said all that much about. I've mentioned a few times. But I found that it's also very essential that God's people have a clear understanding of that. I've known a number of people in my life that have told me that the first door that ever opened, the first light that ever came on, seemingly the first hook that ever went into them to attract them to what the Primitive Baptists teach or to help them to understand it, was when they reached that point that they could understand that there was more than one type of salvation taught in the Bible. I've met a number of people in my life that have told me that uh, I heard Primitive Baptist preach, I heard you preach, I've heard a lot of men preach, but after I was able to understand that there's more than one type of salvation in the Bible, they would tell me that a number of other things began to fall in place. So that first essential that I set before you, that you need to understand if you're going to understand the truth about the, what the Bible teaches is to be able to understand that there is more than one type of salvation taught in the Bible. That word salvation in the Bible usually means deliverance. And I find in the 14th chapter of Exodus, verses 29 and 30, there came a time that the Lord delivered his people across the Red Sea. After they had been delivered across the Red Sea and the Egyptian army pursued them, uh, those same waters through which they had been delivered, those waters collapsed and fell on the Egyptians, and Pharaoh and his horsemen, his army, was drowned in the sea. On the other side, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 29 and 30, it says, And thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I've had a few people tell me over the years, people are critical of what some primitive Baptists teach, they say, you know, that term time salvation is not in the Bible. You're exactly right. I've had other people say that term conditional time salvation is not in the Bible. Well, you're right about that. But I have found in the Bible where the Bible says that day salvation. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. I also find in First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, where he says, that when once in the days of Noah the long-suffering of God waited while the ark was preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water, the life figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. I, I find in the Bible the term now salvation. 
I find the term in the Bible, that day salvation. Now the terms now salvation and that day salvation are close enough to time salvation, or salvation here in time, uh, that's close enough for government work. At least that's close enough for me. So while my critics may be right that that term time salvation is not in the Bible, that day salvation is in there, and now salvation is in there. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. These people were not saved from hell. Uh, they were saved from drowning. They were saved from the swords and spears of the Egyptian army. The salvation the church is a timely deliverance from a timely danger. We come to the 8th chapter of Matthew, verse 25, and the Lord and his disciples are on a ship. The Lord's down in that ship asleep. And a storm begins to toss that ship. Those disciples cry out, and they say, Lord, save us, we perish. When they say, Lord, save us, we perish, it is not hell they have in mind, it's drowning. And when they ask the Lord to save them, they're not expecting that he'll carry them home to heaven and give them hearts of gold. They're expecting that he will indeed deliver them from this storm and from this shipwreck. I find time and time in the Bible where there's a salvation spoken of, and it's a timely deliverance. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I read of a woman being saved in childbearing. That's a timely deliverance. On the other hand, there is an eternal salvation that's taught in the Bible. And if God's people are brought to the point that as you go through the Bible, you can see that there's more than one type of salvation taught in the Bible. There is an eternal salvation, which is entirely by the grace of God, which Jesus told the rich young ruler was impossible with man, because that rich young ruler came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and he said, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He did not say, What good thing must I do that I may join the church? He did not say, What good thing must I do that I might obey the gospel? He said, What good thing must I do that I might inherit eternal life? It's eternal life he's talking about. When that rich young ruler goes away, it says that those disciples that had overheard this conversation, it says, Then were the disciples exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus replies with five simple words, and I've said hundreds of times to God's people, that these five words that came from the holy lips of Jesus Christ are enough to obliterate and demolish every soul-saving sermon that's ever been preached from the foundation of the world. Every sermon that's ever been preached teaches salvation by the works of man. Every book that's ever been written, Jesus demolished it with five words. The question is, uh, Master, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with men this is impossible. There's a salvation with man that's impossible. Now, obeying the gospel is not impossible with you. It's not impossible for you to be baptized. It's not impossible for you to join the church. In fact, God's people ought to do those things. But that salvation that's impossible with man is eternal salvation. He says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The apostle Peter, who overheard that conversation between Christ and the rich young ruler, the apostle Peter, who heard Jesus Christ tell the rich young ruler, or tell those disciples, uh, pertaining to the rich young ruler, that salvation with men is impossible. The apostle Peter, just a short time later, on the day of Pentecost, preached to some people, and in Acts 2.40, it says, with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this unborn generation. 
Someone might say, well, now, Brother Peter, didn't you hear the Lord just a short while back tell us that salvation with man is impossible? Now you're telling some people to save themselves. But notice, the Apostle Peter is not telling these people to save themselves from hell and irretrievable woe and misery. He is telling them to save themselves from this untoward generation. God's people can save themselves from this untoward generation. I could save myself from being a liar by telling the truth. I could save myself from being a thief by not stealing. I can save myself from being a drunkard by not drinking. We can save ourselves from this underworld generation, but eternal salvation with man is impossible. Any individual that tries to take the salvation that Jesus says is impossible with man and make it the same salvation that Peter is exhorting them to find is going to wind up endlessly confused. The second essential fact that I've known a number of people in my experience that have told me that when I came to understand this, there was many, many things opened up to me. That second essential fact is to be able to read the Bible and understand the difference between causes and effects. Now, the law of cause and effect is a law that's used in just about every branch of science, every field of human labor. It is a well-established law. No sensible person can deny it. And the law of cause and effect just simply tells us that in the world in which we live, there are causes, and then there are effects or symptoms or results that are produced for that cause. For instance, if you were to go to your doctor tomorrow and tell the doctor, I have high fever, I've got some aching muscles, uh, my face is flushed, the doctor's not all that impressed with that. The doctor recognizes that those things are symptoms or effects, and that somewhere there probably is a virus or bacteria or toxic condition working in your body that's causing all those things. Uh, that doctor is not so impressed with those effects as he is the cause that they point him back to. Uh, someone might say, I have a pain here in the breastbone. Uh, that is not always a sign of a heart attack. It could be caused by anxiety, tight intercostal nerves coming around the rib cage. It could be caused by several things. Uh, maybe you tell your friend, I've got a pain right here, and they think you're dying of a heart attack. could be several other things. Uh, the doctor's going to check you for some other symptoms and before he arrives at the cause. A person that does not use the law of cause and effect cannot be a doctor. You cannot be an electrician. Uh, this light up here, say, will not burn. Why is it that it won't burn? The lights burn out. Something's wrong in the wiring. Uh, there's some tracing out you've got to do. A mechanic in any field has got to understand cause and effect. That mechanic begins to search for the effects, and he goes back here to the thing that's caused it. All intelligent people have to have some understanding that there's a difference in effects or symptoms, and that's what is causing it. I recall a number of years ago, I was on a talk show on a 50,000-watt station after I'd been on there about two hours. Uh, the host of the show told me, he said, we have about 30 seconds left. He said, in 30 seconds or less, I want you to tell us what's the major difference between the primitive Baptists you represent and other groups of people. I said, the major difference is, is the things that most people teach are the causes of spiritual life. We believe that these things are the effects or evidences of spiritual life. That took considerably less than 30 seconds. And if I were on a talk show to, again and asked that very question, I'd answer it the same way. 
because that is the major difference between primitive Baptists and many other groups of people, is that the things that other people teach are the causes of spiritual life. We teach that these things are the effects, the symptoms, or the evidences of spiritual life. But I know a lot of folks who tell me that once I understood something about cause and effect, then a lot of other things fell into place. And what I mean by cause and effect, as we go through the scriptures, I want to take up very quickly some subjects like faith, repentance, baptism, believing on Christ, uh, good works, godly living, and let's see if these things are causes of spiritual life or if they're the effects of spiritual life. I find in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, where Jesus says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, there's an effect. That person is producing an evidence or a symptom. The symptom is that this person believes that Jesus is the Christ. But notice what he says. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He's already born of God. In John 10:26, the Lord told some wicked Jews, he said, but ye believe not. There's your effect. There's the evidence. Uh, there's the symptom they produce. But ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. Did the Lord say you're not a sheep because you won't believe? He didn't say that. He said the opposite. He said, but ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. He said the reason you don't believe is you're not a sheep to start with. He didn't say you're not a sheep because you won't believe. He said, but ye believe not. Effect. Because you're not of my sheep. Cause. John 8, 47. He says, he that is of God heareth God's words. Effect. Look at the cause of it. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because you're not of God. You're not of God because you don't hear? No, the Lord said the opposite. He said, you don't hear because you're not of God. I find in the scriptures that <clears throat> believing on Jesus Christ is presented in the Bible as an evidence that a person's born again. Now, your believing on Christ is nowhere in the Bible presented as a cause of eternal life. It's presented as an evidence. I find in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says, he came unto his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. Did you notice that were born is in an earlier tense than believe? It's that way in English. It's that way in Greek. It's that way in Eskimo. It says, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. But how were they born? Which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These people were born of God before they believed. I find in the Bible that good works is presented as an effect or evidence of spiritual life. We look at Ephesians 2.10, and Jesus said, the, the Apostle Paul says here, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is not that we did the good works to be the cause of the creation, but we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. And most all Bible readers have read Colossians 2.13, Philippians 2.13, excuse me, which says, For as much as you always obey, God is in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but look at the cause. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
I find place after place in the Bible where faith, repentance, good works, and godly living are always presented as the effects of spiritual life, never the cause. When I think about the subject of faith, I find in Galatians 5.22 the text says, the fruit of the Spirit of these. He compares the Spirit of God to a, to a tree that bears nine manner of fruit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit are these. The tree is the fruit, uh, excuse me, uh, the Spirit is the tree, I will say. The Spirit is the tree that bears nine manner of fruit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit are these. They are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Faith is one of these nine fruits that the Spirit produces. And it's only an individual that's been born of the Spirit that can produce faith, because all people by nature do not have faith. So you say, well, don't you think everybody's got a little? No, I find Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. That plainly says all men don't have it. You say, well, since all men by nature don't have faith, then how is it that anybody has faith? Well, turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul says, Let every man think soberly. For a man not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. If you have faith, it's because God gave it to you. You don't have it by nature. Faith is one of those fruits of the Spirit. So <clears throat> I could go on and take up the rest of the time illustrating the importance of the law of cause and effect. I'm going to move off the cause and effect by saying <clears throat> that the Bible teaches, clearly teaches, that faith, repentance, good works, godly living, baptism, repentance, these things are the effects of spiritual life rather than the causes. Once God blesses you to <clears throat> read the Bible, applying, and I urge you tonight, if you've never done this before, uh, go through the Bible, and when it starts talking about your salvation, look for the cause that the Bible's talking about, then look for the effect. If people can understand the law of cause and effect, they're a long way down the road. Now I want to talk to you about a third essential thing God's people need to understand if they're going to understand what the Bible teaches. That third thing is to have some understanding of what the Bible says about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of his dear son. Those terms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and kingdom of his dear son, in my lifetime I have found where they're used in five different senses in the Bible. I want to deal with three of them. First of all, if I read the Bible from the standpoint that there's only one aspect of the kingdom taught in the, in, in the Bible, that wherever that term appears it's always talking about the same thing, I would be, head, I would be headed for endless confusion in no time. Because I find in the 17th chapter of Luke, verse 20, that Jesus Christ, when the Pharisees inquired when the kingdom of God should appear, he told them, he says, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Son of Column says, cometh not with outward show. It cometh not with observation. Yet I find in John 3, 3 and 4, where the Lord told Nicodemus that except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that you've got to be born again to see is not the same one that comes without observation. 
Something that comes without observation is not the same as something that you've got to be born again to see. Now watch this. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life, and hath, watch this, delivered us from the power of darkness, that's Satan's power, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Here's a kingdom you're translated into. If you want a definition of that word translation, go to Hebrews 11.5. And it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, uh, because before his translation he had this testimony that he had pleased God. That word translated, as it appears in the Bible, is like we use it today. Every day on this earth, men are translating from English into Spanish, from Spanish into German, uh, from English into Russian, Russian back into English. And any sensible person could see that when language is translated, that language is passive. The language has nothing to do with it. The translator is active. When I read over here, by faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, that simply means that Enoch was picked up, Genesis chapter 5, taken right into heaven. This kingdom that you're translated into is something uh, that you... that. Uh, you have nothing to do with. You were passive in it, and the Lord was active. On the other hand, I find in Luke 16, 16, where the Lord says, The Lord and the prophets run till John, and since that time uh, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. <clears throat> A kingdom that you've got to press into actively by pressing against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Is not the same kingdom that you're translated into passively. There's a kingdom over here you're translated into passively. Uh, here's one over here that he says that uh, the law and the prophets were until John says that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man, uh, every man presses into it. I find where the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11, 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, he says, The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it before us. Here's a kingdom that suffereth violence, and the violent take it before us. That is, the world is able to abuse it, the world is able to persecute it, put John the Baptist in jail, have some of the apostles beheaded. On the other hand, in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. He says that I should not be delivered from the Jews, said my kingdom is not from hence. A kingdom that is not of this world is not the same one that a that the world over here uh, suffer it suffers violence, the world abuses it, persecutes it and translates it, and, uh, and persecutes it and torments it. To very simply illustrate what I'm trying to set before you tonight. Use just a very simple illustration. I suppose I'm walking down the streets of Paris, France. There's a man from South America approaching. He looks me over as I approach him. He says, where are you from? Aren't you from North America? I say, yes, I'm from North America. I walk on a bit more. There's a man from Canada. starts approaching me. He says, where are you from? Aren't you from the United States? I say, yes, I'm from the United States. I walk on a little more. Somebody from California, Michigan, someplace like that begins to approach me. They look me over. They say, where are you from? Aren't you from Texas? I say, yes, I'm from Texas. 
I gave three different answers to the question, where are you from? And I did not lie on any point. I told the truth on all three points. I told one person I was from North America. I told another person I was from the United States. I told another one I was from Texas. Now, Texas is not the United States. Texas is not the United States. And the United States is not the same as North America. But one is contained in the other. Watch this. I'm from Texas. That's true. Texas is contained in the United States. It's true that I'm from the United States. The United States is contained in North America. And I have heard men get up and try to preach on the phases of the kingdom and lay them out side to side, and they'd wind up endlessly confused and confuse the audience. These kingdoms cannot be laid out side to side like I lay out songbooks. I'm talking to you about something here that this is contained in this, which is larger. Uh, this is contained in something even larger. Except the man be born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This kingdom he's got to be born into. All right, watch this. <clears throat> there came a time when you were born into that kingdom. When the Lord's talking about being born into that kingdom, he is not talking to you about something that you must do. He's talking to you about something that's done to you. If you'll tell me what you did to be born into the family of your parents, I'll tell you what I did to be born into the family of God. The answer in both cases is nothing. <clears throat> there was a time when you were born of the Spirit. There was a time when you were translated from the, delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, here's a situation that's in your heart. That first aspect of the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, I'm talking about, and remember that term means wherever heaven rules, is a situation in the hearts of born-again individuals. Now then, <clears throat> there, came a time in your, there came a time in your experience where perhaps you met other born-again individuals. These born-again individuals had been established in the truth, and now we're going to move, we're going to move to a larger aspect of the kingdom. I told you a while ago I'm from Texas. But Texas is contained in something larger. I'm also from the United States. We now come to the visible aspect of the Lord's kingdom. There's an aspect of that kingdom that's in the hearts of God's people, in the hearts of born-again people. But now we come to the visible aspect of it. There was a time about 2,000 years ago that the Lord established another aspect of that kingdom. <clears throat> and we find that prophesied in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. About a thousand years before Christ was born at Bethlehem, in 2 Samuel 7, 12, God gave a prophecy to King David. And listen to it carefully. God tells David, once again about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, he says to David, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, that is, when you're dead and buried, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, he said, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When you first read that, you say, well, that's got to be talking about Solomon. Let's come to Acts chapter 2, verse 29, and see how Peter interprets that. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, 
begins to preach to these people, and he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and we know where his sepulchre is to this day. You might say, what a strange way to start a sermon. For a preacher to get up on the day of Pentecost and say, Men and brethren, uh, there's a man that's dead, and we know where he's buried. No, the Apostle Peter starts his sermon that way because Peter is about to show that the prophecy has been fulfilled that could only be fulfilled after David is dead and buried. He said, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he's both dead and buried. And we know where his sepulchre is even to this day. Listen, therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with the oath to him that of the fruit of the loins, a fruit of his loins, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Uh, did he say, bring back Christ to sit on his throne? Didn't say that. He said, raise up. And I don't say this to be ugly or sarcastic, but there are many people in this world who teach that Jesus Christ came to this earth about 2,000 years ago trying to set up a kingdom, that Israel rejected his kingdom. Israel wouldn't have it. And because they wouldn't have it, Jesus put the church here as a substitute, a spare tire, this is known in theology school as the postponement theory, and that Christ, they say, is coming back to an earthly Jerusalem someday to try it all over again to set up his kingdom. Well, <clears throat> uh, people that believe that believe that God is going to bring back Christ to sit on his throne. Listen to what the Bible says. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you the patriarch David that he's both dead and buried. And he says, <clears throat> therefore, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that off the fruit of his loins he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He didn't say bring him back to sit on his throne. He said raise him up. I'm going to prove to you by the Bible that Christ arose from the dead and sat down on the throne of his kingdom. He says that of the fruit of the loins, of his loins, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And he says he seeing this before spake concerning the second coming of Christ. No, sir. He, seeing this before, spake concerning the resurrection of Christ. There is an aspect of Christ's kingdom that Christ established while he was here on this earth. And I come to the 16th chapter of Matthew, and Jesus tells the apostle Peter, and he says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will also give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In that one verse of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ uses the term church and the term kingdom of heaven with reference to one and the same thing. My friends, another aspect of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the church that Jesus built about 2,000 years ago. The Lord's church, the visible church as we refer to it, the people with whom you worship tonight, is another aspect of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But after all, what is the church made up of? <clears throat> the church is made up of a regenerate, that means born-again, body of people. Now, people that are properly fit for church membership are people that have already experienced the first phase or aspect of the kingdom. That is, they've been born into the kingdom. They have been born of God. They've been translated into that kingdom. The Lord dwells in their hearts. The kingdom is within them. And now when they unite with the Lord's church, we're in the second aspect of that kingdom, which I'm going to refer to as the visible aspect. This visible aspect does suffer violence. 
The church that Jesus put here 2,000 years ago has suffered violence. It's been hated by the world. <clears throat> this aspect of the kingdom does suffer violence, and the world hates it. I come now <clears throat> to a third aspect. I find, remember, I said I'm from Texas. That's true. But Texas is contained in something bigger than the United States. I'm also from the United States. The United States is contained in something larger still, which is North America. I come to First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 and 24, and the Apostle Paul says, But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all authority and all rule and power, here's a kingdom that Christ is going to deliver up to the Father. You know what this kingdom is made up of? This kingdom is made up of all of his people out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is that kingdom that the Lord spoke about in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. When the Bible tells us there come that time that Jesus will come in the glory of his Father with all of his holy angels with him, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And listen to what he says to the sheep on his right hand, Matthew 25, verse 34. Come ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's a ye in that sentence and a ye. And the ye that are told to come and enter it is the same identical you that it was prepared for. It's not a matter that it was prepared for one people and given somebody else. He says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the Lord's triumphant kingdom. The Lord's triumphant kingdom that involves all the elect family of God. Now watch this. My definition of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? No, it's not talking about territory. <clears throat> that word kingdom can refer to the royal authority or power of the king. That term dominion can mean the dominion of Hitler, the dominion of Caesar, uh, the dominion of somebody. <clears throat> it can mean that besides meaning a territory. I come to the seventh chapter of Daniel, verse 13. The prophet Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Here's God the Father. And says, There was one like unto the Son of Man came nigh unto him with the clouds of heaven. Here you have Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven to God the Father. And he says, Thou was given him a dominion. There was given him, what's this? It says, the Son of Man came near before him, and says, there was given him dominion and power and glory, that all people's kindred and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is that which does not pass away. <clears throat> Here's the eternal triumphant phase of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, involving all the elect. It'll never pass away. Remember, remember this? That term, kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, means wherever heaven rules. Someday the laws of heaven, heaven, someday heaven will rule over all the elect family of God because Satan will be destroyed. All wickedness vanished from the universe. Heaven rules over all the elect family of God. <clears throat> Whenever heaven is ruling in your heart, you'll enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. Uh, if you're out somewhere by yourself, 
if there's two of you or three of you sitting around discussing the scriptures. Some of the richest experiences I have ever had in my life have been out all by myself, meditating on the things of God, uh, the cares of this life banished, and heaven ruling in my heart. <clears throat> At that particular time, you're eating and drinking. You're enjoying the blessings of the kingdom of God. It's whenever heaven rules. Uh, it's not when the racetrack is ruling your mind. It's not when the hell of vision and the hell of garbage and CBC or ABC or NBC or is ruling your mind. It's not when those things are ruling your mind. It's when heaven is ruling in your mind. Now then, what's this? You say, well, I suppose if we'll gather here automatically at 10.30 on meeting day and come inside, we're going to express the kingdom of God, not on your life. The only way you're going to really express the kingdom of God when you meet here next meeting day is for me to walk in that door saying, Heaven's going to rule in my heart tonight, not my flesh. Heaven's going to rule. Whatever the Lord's told me to do, whatever attitude the Lord's told me to have, that's what I'm going to have. When you get a bunch of folks together and heaven rules in the song service, when you get a bunch of folks together and they're more concerned about singing praises than they are singing for praises, and I've seen both kinds. I've been around folks who it was obvious they were singing for praises. I've been around other folks that were singing praises. You say, heaven's going to rule in the song service. Uh, you sit out there and listen to the man of God. And you say, I'm praying that the Lord will bless me and the Lord will bless him, and I'm shutting the world out, and heaven's going to rule in my heart while I listen. And this man <clears throat> that gets up at the pulpit, instead of having his mind on some cause he wants to promote, if that man <clears throat> will humbly yield himself that whatever the Lord puts on my heart, that's what I'm going to preach. If heaven is ruling in the heart of the man up here and it's ruling in your heart, it's ruling in this building. <clears throat> We're going to have a meeting like maybe you haven't been in in a long time. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is wherever heaven rules. Now then, <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I told you I'd just deal with three aspects and I'm now into the fourth one, but I, I think you'll allow me this, won't you? Two of you brethren or two of you sisters get together, and heaven rules your thoughts. Heaven rules your conversation. Uh, <clears throat> instead of talking about the neighbors, instead of talking about your aches and pains, instead of talking about the wickedness, the evil of, of this world, instead of talking about those things, start talking about what God's done for you and how the Lord's blessed you. Next thing you know, heaven's ruling my conversation, and it's ruling your conversation. And we begin to experience and feel something a lot of folks never feel. You know what we're experiencing? We're experiencing the kingdom of God. Maybe hey, two or three of you get off over here somewhere. Maybe you're in a corner of a cafe. Uh, maybe you're over here on the porch. Instead of talking about the Dallas Cowboys, the Carolina Panthers, I think they're called that, the World Series, you know, uh, all that type of thing, the stock market and what the crops are and all that type of thing, start talking about the goodness of God. Next thing you know, heaven's ruling your conversation, ruling mine, ruling mine, and we're feasting on something you don't find very often in this world. I've seen where God's people met together at the right time. Uh, they got up and mechanically sang the songs, 
And the man gets up and mechanically reels out what he has got to say, and they mechanically shake hands, and they mechanically go out the door. <clears throat> but nobody there has experienced the joy of the kingdom of heaven. You know why? Because heaven didn't rule. That kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, in all five aspects that you find in the Bible, it means wherever heaven rules. It's my, <clears throat> it's my ambition, my desire, that it rule in my heart. It's my ambition when I get together with you that it rule in our midst. And someday it's going to rule over all of us in glory, world without end.